Hello and welcome to Psychology in Seattle. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda, professor and licensed therapist. Today is another podcast party that I am throwing because it's the end of the quarter. It's the end of our term here at Antioch University, and I thought I would celebrate by inviting some of my best friends over to my place, and we could record a podcast. So what do you say, guys? Let's, let's record a podcast. Woo! And my uh, trusty sidekick is here. My name is Humberto Castaneda. I am what they call a cat whisperer. So in this episode, I thought we would do a bunch of tougher bluffs, otherwise known as true or false questions. And other people have brought some tougher bluffs for us. And Alicia has some tougher bluffs for us. I want to do this whole thing team, team-based. And your, <laughs> your team name is what? Call us Wine Cats. Wine Cats. We're the butt-hurt neckbeards. I'll call you the neckbeards. <laughs> Okay, so we have two teams. On my, on my left, we have the wine cats, and on, the, on my right, we have the neckbeards. Yeah. And we're going to be competing. You're going to be competing. So when I provide the question, talk amongst yourselves, come up with an answer, and spokesperson, provide the answer, okay? So I'm going to alternate between psychology-related questions and non-psychology-related questions, right? All right. So the first one, psychology-related. This is from the APA Monitor. It's a good place to look up for synopses of research. All right. Tougher bluff. Teens who commit serious crimes are less likely to commit crimes as adults if they receive therapy or counseling. Again, teens who commit serious crimes are less likely to commit crimes as adults if they receive therapy or counseling. Tougher bluff. Wine cats. Okay, I think the consensus on this side is that it's tough because by emphasizing the word serious crimes, that means that like maybe non-serious crimes are not a determining factor, but serious crimes are. So we're going tough. Neckbeards. Uh, We have to believe that that's true. That is tough. It is true. That's right. Okay, good job. All right, next one. Okay, so that's one us, zero for them? Yeah. Well, but they just copied our answer, so So, it shouldn't count. Okay, so another, uh, this is related. The next two are related to this. Regarding recidivism, teens who commit serious crimes benefit from family therapy equally as much as individual therapy. So when they measure recidivism among people who, teens who commit serious crimes, and they look at how likely they are to commit a crime as an adult, teens who commit serious crimes benefit from family therapy equally as much as individual therapy. Tough or bluff? All right. Neckbeards. The, ne- the neckbeards say bluff. Because we think you're pulling a Berto on us, and they actually benefit what? more. I from resemble it. that. Okay, Berto, do you think I'm pulling a Berto, Berto? I'm gonna delegate this one because I'm offended. I'm, I'm, I'm removing myself from this question. Okay, so we're going with a bluff. It is. That's true. It's a bluff. Yay! Yeah. Re- research shows that systemic and family therapies are more effective when it comes to recidivism. We have some very smart people in this crowd. No, we have a very smart set of people on one side and another very acute hearing set of people on the other side. You're pronouncing it wrong. It's pronounced genius. They accused me, they accused me of pulling a Barrado, so I'm, I'm going to pull no punches. All right, tougher bluff. By what percentage is systemic and family therapies better than individual therapies when it comes to recidivism for teens who commit serious crimes? So by what percentage, and I'm going to list three percentages, and you have to debate amongst yourselves. I suppose it's not tough or bluff. It's not. So by what percentage is systemic and family therapies better than individual therapies when it comes to recidivism for teens who commit serious crimes? Is it 25%, 50%, or 100%? 25, 50, or 100%? Wine cats, your answer. What's our answer? We're saying 15. Okay. <laughs> 50 percent 50 and neck neck cats neck beards <laughs> it's neck beards sir uh we're going with 50 as well 50 percent by both you're both wrong it's a hundred percent better what yay come on cft people what up no i wanted to believe that but i wanted to believe nothing in therapy is a hundred percent it's twice as more effective you can have you can have something be five times more effective. That's 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 an interesting. I, I like what you did there. The, the like odds of being arrested for a felony was more than two times higher if the juvenile offender had been in individual therapy compared with those in systemic and family therapies. But I was going to say that's tricky but fair because we assumed, of course, we assumed it was 
we were just thinking about like nothing's 100%, but you're right. It's just double. That's so. right. You can have something a million percent better. Okay. Okay. Non-psychology related. Well, I guess this is sort of psychology related. Actually, it is psychology related, but this is when it comes down to the, the, the dollar amount that you're bringing up. Okay. So whoever comes closest to the dollar amount wins. Okay. And by the way, the, the score is two to two, two to two. Okay. According to a recent study by my malpractice insurance company, what was the average malpractice claim payment for a counselor? So we come up with a dollar amount. So when a claim is made by a client or someone... Counselor has to pay this amount. No, the, the, the insurance company pays this amount. Uh, okay, on behalf of the counselor. Yes, on behalf of the counselor's so, mistakes. So okay, client says, this guy mistreated me during therapy. I demand 100000 and the insurance pays. Okay. So this is the average amount of payment out. All right, Nick Beards, what's your answer? We had seventy-five. Seventy-five dollars. Thousand. Seventy-five thousand dollars. Okay. And Winecats? Oh, I they misunderstood. It wasn't your insurance pays pays for it up to like a million or three million dollars. That's insane. I'm actually shocked. I'm definitely going into business suing therapists. You're also losing. So one more, and then we'll do introductions uh, because this is related to the last one. Okay. Again, according to a recent study by my malpractice insurance company, what was the average cost to defend a malpractice lawsuit for a counselor? So the average cost to defend a malpractice lawsuit for a counselor. Presumably, it's lower than $128,000, otherwise the insurance company would not be in business, right? No, how much it costs the insurance company to defend against the malpractice? Here's my logic. Professor Snape always wanted the job. Okay, Nick Beards, answer. Uh, 40,000. 25,000, 25,000. It's 48,492. <laughs> Boom. No, if I- what I what had said, 50,000. You said 50,000? 50, yes, I said 50,000. You were making all these claims about Harry Potter and stuff. Yeah, I guess I was. Oh. It seems you've failed again. So uh, let's do introductions. Jessamy wants to do introductions. This is Britton Culber. We did an episode with Britton in which he demonstrated improv therapy, if you've seen it, which was very interesting. Britto got to participate in the improv interventions. It left me messed up, man. I thought it was really funny. You guys were like really funny. You guys like had a lot of good chemistry. It was fun. I'm Jessamy Flynn, and I, as of today, I'm a licensed driver in the state of Washington. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You're not 16. I'm 23. <laughs> so how does it feel to be a driver? It feels good. It feels like if my family were in an emergency, I could, I could drive them to an emergency place. Uh, I'm Alicia Guthrie-Morse. I'm a lot of things, but I'm a student at Antioch. I'm Aaron McLean. I'm an MFT student and an all-around nice guy. Actually, come to think of it, all of you have been on the podcast before. Yes. I'm Christy Forster, and I am also a couple and family therapy student at Antioch. All right. Uh, another psychology-related question. Tougher bluff, people. When alone in a room, people would rather spend time harming themselves than doing nothing or thinking or daydreaming. When alone in a room, people would rather spend time harming themselves than doing nothing or thinking or daydreaming. It was an experiment in which they electrocuted themselves or it was some kind of... I thought this was a razor It was some kind thing. of pain-inducing activity. Like the electricity thing seems fun. So I feel if, you, if, if they put me in a room and they're like, hey, you could do nothing, you daydream or think, or you could press this button, you'll press it once. Clearly they're not going to kill you, right? So you're like, ooh, ooh, <laughs> you know? And then you're just going to do it some more. That's my theory. So it's basically novelty is what you're saying. Yeah. You're in a room. These weirdo scientists in their white lab coats, Mr. Scientists, ask you, do something. And you're sitting there confused as to why you're even there. And then you see a button and it's, it's a red button and it says, don't push me. And then you push it and then you get this little jolt. And at first you're like, <gasps> but then you're like, hmm. They had him sit in a room and they said, you can either do nothing or you can press this button, which induces pain. And it's your option. And I think it was for like a half an hour-ish or something. All right. Uh, Neckbeards. We're going to go tough. We're going to go tough. And you went tough. You're both right. It's tough. Participants in this study preferred giving themselves mild electric shocks rather than to spend the time thinking or daydreaming. 
I mean, the idea <laughs> makes sense, though. I mean, our inability, particularly as Westerners, to just sit in a room with nothing to do might produce so much anxiety. In fact, as a celebration for my doctorate, whenever I graduate from another... Way to plug it. <laughs> whenever I graduate, like when I graduated from uh, junior high, I randomly... Woo! <laughs> Way to plug it. <laughs> uh, I, me and my, my childhood friend, we swam across uh, the bottom of the Suquamish Falls, just, just, just kind of randomly. And so ever since then, whenever I graduate some kind of thing, I think, okay, what could I do that would be memorable? So uh, I got a Groupon, I don't know if anyone saw this, but of a deprivation chamber. Yeah, and, and so I've never done that before, and it involves water, and so I, you know, I probably will remember it. And I have to tell you, I'm a little bit scared of it because I don't like small, enclosed, wet, drowny places. Ah! How, how does it work? What? Well, it's like a pod. It's a pod that you get in. And like it's, a podcast? saline water that you float in and you go naked by the way and they close the pod and it's com- it's pitch black no sound no sensation i think it's for an hour how, how tight and closed is it? like it's um you can't feel the walls but it's not big it's probably okay. like like uh i mean does it have enough room for an erection is what i'm asking for yours definitely <laughs> <laughs> okay good <laughs> then i don't feel like it's a bad idea <laughs> <laughs> anyway whenever i tell people that i'm going to do this they all say universally no way would i do that that would drive me crazy to be alone in a room with no input with just my thoughts for how long in an hour. An hour? Well, you can go for long if long. Can, long, if you, can you bring a taser and electrocute yourself? Uh, all right. Tougher bluff. On average, becoming a father reduces depressive symptoms. So this is for, for new fathers. On average, becoming a new father reduces depressive symptoms. Tougher bluff. I think it depends on exactly what stage of a new father. Like an average new father, yes. But it's like on finding out that you're a dad. Woohoo! After week six of sleep birth? deprivation? I guess I'd just say tough because I have no idea. Wine cats. We're going to say tough because as new fathers, we have no idea. Okay, and neckbeards. Uh, we're going to say bluff that it probably increases depression. That's right. Bluff increases depression. Neckbeards is pulled ahead with four points. Uh, On average, becoming a father increases depression. Anyone symptoms. can win the lottery. That's right. You know? The moral of the story is don't have kids. Re- related to that... Related to that, tougher bluff, becoming a father increases depressive symptoms by how much? And, and I'll provide three options. Increases depressive symptoms by 9%, 26%, or 68%. We got increasing depressive symptoms Ooh. on average for all new fathers. Depress- <laughs> 9%, 26%, or 68%. Tougher bluff, or choose with one. Okay, Nick Beards, what's your answer? Uh, the six, was it 68? There's a 68. Yeah, 68%. Okay, 68%. They're going, they're going high. We can't beat them if we're Wine cats. Wine cats. 68%. <laughs> Math That's is true. 68%. Oh, yes. Oh. I knew it. I knew it. That's right. I knew it. I wanted us to. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, guys. I mean, thank me for staying true to our answer. Does anyone have any insight on that? 68% increase in depressive symptoms for new fathers? I just, lack of sleep, lack of probably sex, lack of. I I say um, an increased sense of need to be responsible for more people and... um, I bet it would also be um, lack of attention from his spouse, um, not being able to receive the same type of support that they do from their spouse generally. I just went on, uh, attended a seminar on that and the, uh, the problems just for men in the relationship after the birth of a new child... They're just not getting the same amount of attention that they were used to from their spouse. And if the sort of if the oxytocin in them, kind of from their relationship with their spouse, is somehow suddenly taken away, their depressive symptoms could start to increase. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. Okay, the next set of questions is based on OKCupid data. After that, we'll do Alicia's questions. But for now, we have a bunch of questions on OK, a study that OKCupid did on their own data. Okay. Well, their conclusions are probably flawed, but the data... So I actually took their study and reworded it based on what their findings were, not their conclusions. 
So these questions are from those data. Who claimed to have more sexual partners, men or women? So again, we're looking at OkCupid users, and they click on how many sexual partners they've had in a little box, I'm guessing, or they fill it in or something. And so who claimed to have more sexual partners, men or women? And this is not a trick question. It wasn't and the it, same. And it's not a tough or bluff. It's a one it, of the You other. do men or women. Okay. Yeah. Well, we know the answer. All the next questions are all non-tough or bluff questions. We know the answer. I don't know the details. Give me the deets. What's the deets? I don't know details. I just know some context. One person I know in particular who was citing OkCupid is that I think their target audience is a little bit more promiscuous. Oh, okay. Well, that's hearsay. <laughs> okay, Cupid. Do okay, not. All right. time's up. Wine cats. All right. Men will naturally inflate their numbers. Women will deflate their numbers. So men have it. Okay, and neckbeards. At the risk of breaking our streak, we also choose men. It is women. <laughs> women claimed more. What? Women claimed to have slightly more partners on average than men did. Because it was anonymous. That's where speculation comes into play. You don't know. In fact, you don't even know if their claim to be a man or a woman is, is real. I mean, so That's you, against every study of... But to be fair, you've never seen a study. Uh, uh, no, that's true. But, no, actually, that's not true. That's not true. We did, in fact, in some episode, talk about how more men say that they have had more partners because they, it's cool as a man to have more partners. Absolutely. I mean, all of your reasoning... Yeah was, I think, sound in that our society definitely, shall we say, encourages men to inflate their numbers and encourages women to deflate their numbers. Okay, answer this question. They took the data tag off the photographs, off the profile pictures, to determine what sort of camera was used for the user's profile pictures. Does that make sense? So they could determine, OkCupid could determine what sort of camera was used to take all the pictures that are on their site. Which phone was associated with the most sexually active partners? You know, so they, so they, claim, they claim to have, you know, this again, they're entering in how many people they've had sex with. Out of these three phones, which is the most? We have Android phone, we have BlackBerry, and we have iPhone. So which phone is associated with the most claimed sexual partners? Just a little update. Neckbeards are ahead by one point. Yeah. Only one. All right, neckbeards. We're going with the iPhone. And wine cats. Android. iPhone. Neckbeards up by two points. iPhone, the average for 30-year-olds. This is for 30-year-olds. But, it would, but I gave oh, you... The, I didn't say no. that! I said it for all, all users. But this is for 30-year-olds in particular. 11 sexual partners on average for iPhone claimed. BlackBerry, 8 sexual partners. Android, 6. So iPhone people had claimed almost twice the amount of sexual partners as Android. Which, you know, really, I don't... I would have... You guys had a lot of logic about how to come up with that answer. And I, I have to tell you, I would have no idea how to determine the answer to that question. These, these guys led me wrong. These guys led me wrong because I was thinking iPhone users are cooler and so they would have the most partners. No, it's just iPhone users are cooler and much more attractive. <laughs> for 18-year-olds, what was the average number of claimed sexual partners? For 18-year-olds, come up with the number, what was the average number of claimed sexual partners on OkCupid? Android users, I still claim, are more numerous more numerous, but iPhone users are sluttier, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with it. Nothing wrong with it. No slide shaming. But, but How dare you? Right. Wine cats. Yeah, so 10 Android users at one partner each versus three iPhone users at Why are you 600. talking about iPhone and Android? Because We're talking about 18-year-olds. I know, but they... Because <laughs> it's on OkCupid, and we just determined that, that Android reporters have six partners. At 30 years old. Well, I know, but you said an, aver an average Android, uh, iPhone has the most, Android has the least, right? Right. So I'm going kind of low, right? Okay. And so we're saying four. Neckbeards. Five. It's two. You guys Woo! get the point. Okay, for 25-year-olds, average claimed sexual partners for 25-year-olds. Neckbeards. A six. And wine cats. Five. Five. Five is correct. Woo! You guys are now tied again. If you would have gone with four, it would have been a tie between the two. These of you. guys over here use blackberries. That's why. okay. And <laughs> same question: forty-year-olds average claimed sexual partners for forty-year-olds. 
40-year-olds? Higher than the 25-year-olds? Hear me out. Blackberries have some features that the 40-year-olds prefer, so they have more Blackberries. And Blackberries were more sex than the, than the Androids, so I'm going a little higher. But... Okay, wine cats. 6.5. 6.5. You can't do 0.5s? You can. Okay, 6.5. At 40, average amount of partners at 40 years old? Yeah. At 40 years old, claimed sexual partners. And you said 6.5? Hey, no, no slut shaming. We're going 25. We're owning it. Uh, it's 12, which makes them closer. We are very amorous people. <laughs> so something happens between 25 and 40. Then. They learn how to talk to women. <laughs> okay. Another, I mean, to me, when I saw these numbers, I thought it was actually quite low compared to what I would think people would be saying. So again, you don't know if it's true or not. I mean, you'd have to, I don't know how you could verify these facts, but so the average is, is 12. So that means you have some people at six and some people at 20. And culturally speaking, OkCupid is associated for me with polyamory, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. It's, I think it's like the polyamorous site. Well, you can, I think you can indicate what you are, yeah, but, yeah. but I think for whatever reason, a lot of polyamorous yes. people go there. Well, I actually think, given this question, it would be really interesting to know, like, instead of how many partners, how many actual times you, an individual has sex in their lifetime. I wonder what those numbers are. Three. Or- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, another question. Again, looking at the OKCuba okay data, they had people rate profile pictures on attractiveness. So they had random raters rating profile pictures on attractiveness. So which camera phone was associated with the most attractive pictures? Android, BlackBerry, iPhone, or Windows phone? So which camera was associated with the most highest rated attractive pictures? My bias is Windows phone because those cameras are awesome. But you're thinking the camera made up for their looks? I don't think so. Here's my other theory. So iPhones have the highest number of partners, right, reported. And they must be getting those higher partners because they look better. It's not like they're like, oh, your profile was so deep. No, come on. You know, your picture was deep. That's what was deep. Wine cats are ahead by one point, by the way. Are you surprised? We're the wine cats. I think that's some some shoddy scorekeeping. We're the wine cats. Okay. Neckbeards. iPhone. 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 iPhone's correct. Yay! Okay, what's number two? Just a random guess. Uh, Android. Windows was last at number four. Android. Android number two, then Blackberry. Yeah, I see. All right, last but, question. Did a flash make people look more or less attractive? Did a, did, a, did a flash make people look more or less attractive to the raiders that were raiding the, the pictures? Flash is worse. Flash is worse. All right, wine cats. Worse. So less. Less. Not more. And more. neck beard. Less. More. Less. You both are right. Less. Yay! Flashes suck, man. I know. Okay, so now let's go with Alicia's. My questions are so not fun compared to these. No, that's good. Um, <laughs> we hate fun. These are very history-based because of what I told you I would do. So, the philosopher Descartes is known for his scientific contributions, but he's also known for his contributions to psychology in that he sought to ask the question, are the mind and body the same or different? The famous answer, of course, to this is, I think, therefore, I am. This answer came to be known as Cartesian dualism. This is tougher bluff. It's not dualism because what he was establishing was a basis for formulating arguments on top of anything. And so he said, look, the first thing I can start with is, I think, therefore, I am. And that establishes that I have a frame of reference that is true because even by doubting that I exist, I do exist. Okay. But that's not dualism in the sense that there's a mind and a a body that are separate. So I'm going bluff. We're going bluff. Okay. And neckbeards. I I say tough. Uh, I know Descartes definitely separated the mind and the body. And from that point of view, which I think was uh, situated in his white male privilege, that he was able to separate himself from his body and therefore take this stance of objectivity by being able to like look at objects. So I do think that there is a binary and um, I don't know 100% that it was coined Cartesian dualism, but I do agree with the premise of that statement. So bluffs get it, but, yeah! but not for the reasons that you say, so uh, I'm not sure that I want to give it to you. <laughs> well, explain. So I think therefore I am 
came from Descartes rationalizing his own existence through um, trying to prove from a philosophical perspective. So you're right on that. But there is such a thing as Cartesian dualism. I didn't say there wasn't, but... And it is um, to do with the mind and body, but Cartesian dualism says that the mind influences the body and the body influences the mind. But, 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 I, but we never debated that. We never debated that. I know. What did you say? What I said was that he contributed the mind and the body aspect of it, but that the answer to that was, I think, therefore I am. And this was known as Cartesian dualism. Which is not true. I didn't even catch what you yeah. were saying there. There's a lot of questions like that. I'm just going to say that. Okay. <laughs> so I... I these aren't great questions, but they're really tricky. <laughs> I like it, though. And I wanted to clarify that we never debated that there was such a thing as oh, blah, blah. We just debated your, your connection. Mm-hmm. He, he considered mm-hmm. the mind to be a separate entity mm-hmm. from the body, but, but definitely connected. It was also not clear whether that was his true sentiment because he became an apologist for the church to try to explain why God existed. Mm-hmm. And it was a very convenient, logical leap to say, clearly the mind is separate from the body, hence soul, blah, blah, blah. Right. Yeah, you can study the history regarding this issue for a long time and, and be very confused at the end. But anyway, a lot of the current problematic thinking in terms of mind-body being separate is often blamed on Descartes. Ah. Okay, so here's another one. So around this same time in 1818, the McLean Asylum, not the McLean, But the McLean Asylum for the Insane admitted its first patient, which was a young man who who his father believed that he was possessed by the devil. It has since treated numerous people, including John Nash, Stephen Tyler, James Taylor, Ray Charles, Anne Sexton, Sylvia Plath, Susanna Kaysen, and David Foster Wallace, and inspired Plath's The Bell Jar, and Kaysen's Girl Interrupted. Interesting. Is this a tougher bluff or is this an essay? This is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're all like that. So sorry. <laughs> it's okay. All right, neckbeards. It's been proven um, the more uh, detail there is to something, the uh, higher the likelihood of it being true. You've never heard one of mine. I don't know. So <laughs> I'm going to say tough. We've got to go bluff on this because she spent all this, like, she wrote this down. Like, she must have pulled a bardo in this one. Like, either, either one of those people never went there, or the thing doesn't exist, or it's a different name. Like, come on. Bluffies. It is tough. Ah. Yeah. Um, number three. James Cattell's many contributions to psychology include focusing on practical test-oriented approaches to studying mental processes rather than through introspective structuralism. And he was the first psychologist to teach statistics and advocate their use in data analysis. However, he's most well-known for bringing Sigmund Freud to America, which would have been Freud's first and last visit. In any one of those words could be false. <laughs> sure, tough. Um, I'm going to say bluff. The neckbeards go bluff as well. Oh. It is bluff. Ah. But most of that was true. Most of that was true. The only thing that was false was Stanley Hall was responsible for bringing Sigmund Freud to America, but everything else was true. That is what the definition of a Berdo is. <laughs> we have a new thing. This is an Alicia. This is an Alicia. Because <laughs> Berdo doesn't do his research. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, yeah. The, this is the opposite of a Berdo, actually. So this is where you book the hall and you give a lecture for two hours and at the end. So was that true or false? <laughs> I figured the audience was going to be very intelligent. I had to really mess with y'all. <laughs> oh, you thought the other people were going to show up. All right, yeah. number four, number four. Okay. In 1985, the APA admitted Division 35, also known as the Society for Psychology of Women. This division recognized the diversity of women's experience, which results from a variety of factors, including ethnicity, culture, language, socioeconomic status, age, and sexual orientation. This also is the same year that the Society for the Psychological Study of Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Issue was founded. Can you say that one again? 1985, the APA admitted Division 35, also known as the Society for Psychology of Women. This division recognizes a diversity of women's experience, which results from a variety of factors, including ethnicity, culture, language, socioeconomic status, age, and sexual orientation. This is also the same year that the Society for the Psychological Study of Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Issues was founded. 
Neckbeards. Uh, we're going bluff. I'll go bluff. Wine cats. And we could be wrong. We believe the, the female organization was founded. We believe it was a little too early for the gay bisexual uh, organization. So not the same year. Bluff. Interesting. Okay. That's really interesting because Division 35, which is the Society uh, for the Psychology of Women, was created in 1973. So it is bluff, by oh. the way. And But the psychology, psychological study of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender issue did happen in 1985. Oh, okay. Okay. So you're right, but just... Right for the... Different. Yeah. No, it was right. And- so, by the way, that's a really good one, question-wise, because even though it was like kind of complex, there was, a, there was a key point to it, and you based the tougher bluff on that key point. Mm. So that one's awesome. Oh, the other ones, though. The other one was very interesting, but it was very Berto-ish. So the creator of the Berto is giving the creator of the Alicia advice about tougher bluffs. Okay, Alicia, number five. Okay. um, These are very educational for the podcast listeners. There's there's a good portion of our crowd is like, finally, they're talking about something important. (laughs) What? My Lord of the Rings ones aren't? (laughs) Okay. Um... There is controversy amongst historians regarding the founder of psychology. On one hand, most history books ascribe the creation of psychology to Wilhelm Wundt in 1879, while on the other hand, some argue that the founder of psychology is Gustav Theodor Fechner in 1850 when he discovered Fechner's Law, which asserts that relationship between the mind and body could be measured and quantified. Wine cats. All right. I'm with the B. Oh, it's a bluff. Bluff. Because clearly Gustav Kurkhunter didn't Kurkhunt as much as she said he did. Yeah, I'm going to say bluff. Uh, Vunt definitely argued to be one of the founders of psychology and the other one not. And neckbeards. I'm going to go tough. Okay. It's tough, yo. It's tough. <laughs> neckbeards pull ahead by one point. Okay, you have to really pay attention to this one. Oh. Okay. Stanley Hall was the first American man to earn a PhD in psychology in 1879 and was the first president of the American Psychological Association. Several years later, in 1920, Margaret Washburn would be the first American woman to be awarded a PhD degree in psychology and would subsequently be the first woman president of the American Psychological Association. I'll say bluff. Winecats. All right, we're going tough. We are going bluff meow. Did you say bluff meow? Alicia, what is it? It is bluff. Yeah. Neckbeard's ahead by two points. Washburn earned her PhD in 1894. 1920, folks, was the year that women earned the vote. In 1921, she would be the second woman president of AP. Wow. Amy Moores and her colleagues published a paper on relationship between attachment and consensual non-monogamy. Polyamory. Her findings conclude that avoidant individuals were found to hold negative views, whereas highly anxious individuals hold more positive views. Unsurprisingly, secure individuals are not only the most willing, but are the most successful, reporting greater trust, less jealousy, higher relationship satisfaction, and higher relationship functioning. This is an interesting question. That's really interesting. So you're saying the avoidance are what again? Her findings conclude that avoidant individuals were found to hold negative views, whereas highly anxious... Negative views of polyamorous relationships? Of consensual non-monogamy. Whereas highly anxious individuals hold more positive views, and secure individuals are the most willing because... uh, More willing than... um, The anxious or... mm -hmm. So it goes secure, anxious, avoidant? Mm-hmm. What is avoidance, sorry? Uh, so avoidant have negative views. But, but I mean, can you describe what avoidant means? No, I can't. Oh. Avoidant, avoidant attachment style. Avoid, avoidant attachment style people tend to be very independent and avoid relationships, even though on the inside they really want mm-hmm. attachment. They're, they're insecurely attached. Um, there's two types of people. You're either securely attached when you're growing up or you're insecurely attached. And of the insecure attached people, the way to cope with that, that insecurity and in the attachment is to either avoid attachments or to be very preoccupied or anxious. So preoccupied people tend to be like, what are you doing? What do you think of me? Or, Am I okay? Do you, oh. I feel like you don't love me. I feel like ah. we're, so it's preoccupied. Okay. The avoidant people from the outside appear to not care about people very much. Whereas secure people from the outside. But secure people have a balance between caring 
and differentiation okay. on terms of their own security with themselves. Did I explain that? Yeah. Any? That's good. I think the anxious would be the worst. Like, anxious would be the worst, but the 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 avoidant. Okay, neckbeards. We're kind of split on this one. Uh, we'll be split on it, but my my f- perspective is that I think that the anxious might not be so geared towards the uh, polyamorous, just because I don't think they'd handle. Um, other partners with other partners very well. I think there would be too much um, jealousy. That's My a, answer like a bluff. is a bluff, but only for that portion. It's logical. All right. Yeah, Wine cats. We say bluff for basically the same. We just think the order is wrong. It was probably anxious, avoidant, uh, secure. Yeah, I'm going to say bluff. I'll take a guess as to the order. I would say, I mean, the logical is avoidant people are the most attracted to polyamory with secure being second and then preoccupied or anxious being last. I'm very interested in the results of this study. So Alicia, what is the answer? So it is bluff, but I should explain some things. Did everyone guess bluff? Yes. So it's bluff. So secure attachment wasn't studied at all. I made that whole part up. So avoidant individuals do not hold negative views. They're the most positive. They hold the most positive views, but they hold the positive views and are, they are the more willing because when they enter into the, a relationship, it's more easily diluted for emotional distress. It's more easily diluted? Yeah. So the more people they engage in, the more diluted their emotions become, the easier it is for them to engage. Weird. Well, they're less. They're yeah, less. Yeah, they just don't anxious. You were right, totally. They don't want to be part of it at all. Right. That would have been really weird if it was not that. Yeah. But I'd be interested to see where secure would fall in. I would right. be interested to see where I. I imagine secure would be just like what I said. Right. <laughs> but on the other hand, I could see secure people being below because you know avoidant people would be more attracted and and have more again positive views of polyamory. As opposed, not that secure people couldn't, uh, but... I just imagine if secure people would enter into that, that they would figure out a way of making it work for them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the idea. Mm -hmm. Can we avoid this because it's making me anxious? (laughs) All right. Number eight or seven. Really early psychology. So while several disciplines influence the development of psychology, two disciplines are of particular importance. One is phrenology and suggests that one could uncover and understand someone's personality by feeling and interpreting the bumps on their head. The other is psychophysics, which is essentially how people interpret the world that they live in. So, sorry, so the, the, the first statement was that too early science has developed? No. Oh, Just that there is a lot of disciplines that have influenced psychology, and this is two of those them. Those are two of them. These two, yeah. Okay. Not that they're the only two, just that those are right. two. Right. Okay. Right. So the first one is phrenology, and the other is psychophysics. Of psychophysics, it's just how you interpret the world around you. Neckbeards. <laughs> We're going bluff. Because we think that it's phrenology and something else. Okay. Yes. Bluff. I think about it though. She said two. No, go with your original answer. God damn it. Okay. It's tough. They're both real. Um, it's actually tough. Yeah. I'm sorry I double crossed you, but you know why I had to do it? Psychophysics is is a real thing. All right, so neckbeards ahead by one point. Though cultural competence is at the forefront of psychology today. Ruth Howard Beckham, who was the second African American woman to earn a PhD in psychology in nineteen thirty four was one of the first to speak out against the egocentricity and cultural incompetence of the profession. We're going to go bluff because it was the, the PhD year is what we're calling into question. Okay, I'll go bluff as well. We're going bluff, just because. Well, she did earn her PhD in 1934, but it is bluff because she was actually the first African-American woman, not the second. Oh, Wow. She was the first to call out cultural incompetence. That's fascinating. Okay, one more or two more? One more. One more. (laughs) These are really good. We're learning a lot. I actually have two more. Two more. Two more. Okay, so this same week, and it was actually October 3rd in in 1962, Stanley Schechter and Jerome Singer's classic article, Cognitive Social 
and Physiological Determinants of an Emotional State was published in Psychological Review. The article outlined the two-factor theory of emotion, which suggests that emotion comes from a combination of a state of arousal and cognition. I've read this article, and uh, I'm trying to recall it, <laughs> the specifics. It's a famous article. It's, it's a good piece of history. Uh, neckbeards. Bluff. And wine cats. Okay, it's, it's a bluff because, like, who writes this whole article with only two states? Can you read the last, like, five words again? The article outlines the two-factor theory of emotion, which suggests that emotion comes from a combination of a state of arousal and cognition. A combination of a state of arousal and cognition. That's bluff. It's true. It's tough that there is a combination of emotions that deal with these two factors, the state of arousal and cognition. From my memory, one comes before the other, and so that's what I thought. Oh, so I kind of messed with you a little bit? No, well, you know. I mean, you're right, but the theory is a very famous theory above emotion, and so there's an emotional arousal, and then there's a cognitive evaluation of that arousal, and then you have an emotion. So when you said combination, I thought, same time, that's what I was interpreting. Because that, that's like, and then other people were debating with the Schachter Singer people regarding whether or not cognition comes first or whether or not emotional uh, physical arousal comes first. That was a big debate. That's really interesting. I'd actually be interested in that, like the reaction, like feeling nauseous and then and something bad happening or whatever. And this could even tie back into the OK Cupid world um, because I've been getting the grossest emails from people, and it actually makes me like it taints the whole site. Like it, my entire experience of like trying to talk to people online is tainted by like all the gross, weird emails I get randomly. <laughs> all right. Last one. So in 2011, Melba Vasquez became the 13th woman elected president of the APA, but the first woman of color. Melva Vasquez became the what? What year? In 2011, she became the 13th woman elected president of the APA, but she was the first woman of color. Neckbeards. We're going to go bluff. 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 It's tough. <laughs> it's tough. Sad but true. 2011. Sad but true. I'm not surprising given the APA's tendency to move slowly. Okay. So I have uh, now I have a, a quiz for the two teams. And it's on paper, okay? Oh. It's going to be the effectiveness of birth control. You have to rank the effectiveness of the following birth control methods. Do we have to try each method out? I used to work in reproductive health. So we have to rank by effectiveness. So the number one would be pull-out method. Where is that one? (laughs) Withdrawal. There it is. No? Is that not number one? Let's think about this. Awareness-based fertility. Or ovulation method. That's number two. <laughs> All right. So seriously, like, where's the ones that completely ster- sterilize? Like, those are some of the most effective, right? Like, between male and female, which one do you think? And t- take note, this is with perfect use. Yeah. Oh, I see. Okay. But with perfect use. What's a Nuva ring? Is a Nuva ring like a UAD? UAD? Well, and they didn't list abstinence-only education, which should have been number zero. <laughs> Onanistic is a word I just recently learned, and it actually does mean uh, withdraw prior to ejaculation. But it also mas- masturbation. So I'm going to read a number associated with each item, and I want you to minus your number with my number, and then write that number off to the side, and you'll, you'll count all those numbers, because it'll be basically the difference between the real versus... The deltas, yeah. So whoever's good at math, <laughs> and some of these are tied for different positions. So, so, so for instance, there's three number ones in, okay, in my perfect. list. But so not we already in, got it But wrong. not in your... Okay. <laughs> so number one, hormonal implant. Oh, damn it. Okay. So that was one. That is, uh, if you use so, it perfectly, less than 1%. That's fine. If you use it imperfectly, also less than 1%, because you can't imperfectly lose, use a hormonal implant. So number one, so this is a number one rank, male sterilization. So you want us to use one, not two? Yeah, one. Okay, male sterilization. Because it's tied for one, first place. Okay, that's fine. It's tied for first place, male sterilization. Less than 1%, 
Less than 1% of people, of women, get pregnant after using this form solely after a year. And the third one is levonogestrel IUD, which, which is a... Still hor- number one, though? Still number one, which is a hormone-based IUD. Okay, number four, rank number four, is Depo-Provera. This is also less than 1% likelihood. Oh, sorry, what rank is it? Four, Depo-Provera, number four. Fifth on the list out of 17 is the Nuva Ring. There's uh, three ties for fifth place. Okay. Another fifth place, number five, Evra Patch. Yeah, that's another hormonal. That's another These are all hormone-related methods. And another number five, the pill. So pill, Evra Patch, Nuva Ring, Depo-Provera, the hormonal IUD, male sterilization, and hormonal implant, all with less than 1% chance of getting pregnant in the first year. All right. Number eight, eighth rank is female sterilization at 1%, not less than 1%. Yeah. Female sterilization, slightly more likely to get pregnant than male sterilization. Eight rank, uh, another eight rank is the copper IUD. So very effective IUDs, very effective. And when you add the hormone, even more effective. Rank number 10, male condom. At 2% of women will become pregnant within a year. 11, awareness-based fertility or ovulation method. That surprised me. So if you use the rhythm method, essentially, you have a 3% chance only of being pregnant after a year. It, it's, it's, almost, it's basically as effective as wearing condoms, which is ridiculous. <laughs> number 12, the withdrawal method. Only 4% of women get pregnant using the withdrawal method after a year of using the withdrawal method. Yeah, that's if you use it perfectly. If you use it imperfectly, it's 22%. <laughs> Same with the withdrawal with the um, rhythm method. It's 24% if, if you use it imperfectly after a year. All right, number th- 13, female condom. Female condom less effective than the male condom. I don't know why that is. I would have imagined it to be reversed, honestly. Maybe it tears. The reverse. All right, number 14, diaphragm. Who uses a diaphragm anymore anyway? 14 for diaphragm. 6% of women. Number 15, sponge prior to any births. With 9% of women being pregnant. What what number did you say? 15 for sponge prior to any births. And 16 is spermicide. Again, who uses just spermicide for birth control? I mean, just spermicide. Oh, you're here for that reason? And number 17, sponge after giving birth. So if you use the sponge perfectly after giving birth, you, are, you have a 20% likelihood of getting pregnant. That's 17 for sponge. Sperm, spermicide is 16. And tally up the differences. All right, White Cats had a score of 51. This is a golf-like score in which you want to have the lowest number. Yeah, 53. 53 by the Neckbeards. Woo! Can we call that an annihilation? That's kind of an annihilation. So, uh, Alicia, are you, are, are you surprised by any of these results here? Well, she's a little rattled. I don't know if she can answer right now. I'm totally not rattled. What are you talking about? Um, I'm not... Which ones did you get massively wrong? We got female condom massively... No, we got that. Female sterilization massively wrong. What, what rank did you put it? We put it first. It's actually... The distinction between 8 and 1 is less than 1% or 1%. Do you know what I mean? We also got the withdrawal massively wrong because that just does not make any sense to That me. makes no sense, right? No sense. Yeah. Um, the ever patch we got kind of... Wrong. So again, just to go on the uh, on the rankings here. Basically, we have a lot of uh, really great methods at the top here: hormonal implant, male sterilization, the hormonal IUD, Depo-Provera, NuvaRing, Everpatch pill, female sterilization, and the copper IUD. And then you have male condom, which is pretty good if you use it perfectly. You have to use it perfectly. Also, the, the ovulation method, mm-hmm. which, again, if you use it very, right. very well, it can go well for you or it could go very badly. And then, of course, never use the sponge or spermicide or diaphragm. Oh, really? Those are just prone to? Prone to get you pregnant, yeah. What if you combine all of them? At the same time? Yeah. You open a hole in the space-time continuum. Because <laughs> you're like trying to withdraw while you're using two layers of condoms, and there's six diaphragms in there. And- Next quiz. 
cause of deaths in the United States in the year 1900. So I want you to rank the following items. You have accidents, Alzheimer's, cancer, cerebrovascular disease, diabetes, frailty, heart disease, homicide, infectious diseases, nephropathies, sharks, suicide, and terrorism. That's true, but that's why we didn't rank it high. All right, you guys ready? We are. So I'm going to go again by ranking number. Number one is infectious diseases. So in the year 1900 in the United States, the leading killer was infectious diseases. Anyone want to take a guess at the percentage of deaths that were caused by infectious diseases? Uh, 40%. 53%. You guys are all pretty close. Number two, <laughs> number two, heart disease. 40 is closer to 50. Heart disease at 12%. That's number two. Number two is heart disease at 12%. Number three is cerebrovascular disease at 10%. So these are strokes and whatnot. Fourth place, nephropathies or kidney diseases. Kidneys was a leading killer of people back in 1900 at 8%. Kidney pies. Number five, number fifth rank, accidents at 7%. 7% of people, 7% of the people who died in the year 1900 were from accidents. Number six, cancer. Number seven, frailty. And tied for number eight, and last is everything else. Okay, so eight, so do eight on everything. With diabetes, Alzheimer's, sharks, terrorism, suicide, and homicide. I mean, they're all not the same number, but the number is so insignificant compared to the other, the seven others that it's not even worth mentioning. So again, just to review that, uh, you have infectious diseases, number one. You have two, heart disease. And the third, you have cerebrovascular disease. And fourth, you have nephropathies. And fifth, you have accidents. Sixth, you have cancer. Seven, you have frailty. And tied for last place is diabetes, Alzheimer's, sharks, terrorism, suicide, and homicide. Do you... Shoot out. All right. Wine cats are with 27. What's your score? 75. 42. 42. What? <laughs> oh, my God. And with that, wine, coats, wine cats are up one point. Oh. Hey, I have a question. Do you have any Band-Aids? Because I see these guys bleeding over there. Your mom goes to college. Kirk's the only person that brings quizzes to a party. <laughs> so this is the same question, but statistics for 2010, for 2010. We will consult for a fee. So if you guys want our services. So, so if, if you guys win, if Neckbeards win, then it'll be a tie game. We have to do a tiebreaker. But if Winecats win, the game's over. They've clinched it. Because they're up by one point. This is like the little fifth grader going up against Michael Jordan at his peak. But anyway, again, uh, cause of deaths in the United States, 2010, rank the following. Accidents, Alzheimer's, cancer, cerebrovascular disease, diabetes, frailty, heart disease, homicide, infectious diseases, nephropathies, sharks, suicide, and terrorism. It's a tight game. Wine cats with 17 points, neckbeards with 16 points. Who will win? Who will win? All right. So, starting with number one, heart disease. Number one. Anyone get that right? Yay! All right. Good job. Good job. Number two, cancer. Anyone get that right? No, apparently not. Uh, heart disease at 33%, cancer at 32%. So we're, we're already up to 65% of people that died in 2010 in the United States. Number three, frailty. Number four, cerebrovascular disease at 7%. Frailty was 8%. Fifth, ranked fifth, is accidents. Accidents killed 6% of the people who died in 2010. The sixth rank, number six, is Alzheimer's. Spot on. Good job. Uh, seven is diabetes. In 2010, of the people who died, diabetes claimed 4% of people. Rate ranked eight. Eight is nephropathies, kidney disease, at, th- at 3%. And 10 is suicide. 
of the people who died in 2010, about one or less percent was by suicide. Uh, less frequent than suicide is homicide. That's 11. And sharks and terrorism are also number 11. Terrorism's got to be the lowest. That was number, oh, did I say it? Sorry, nine infectious diseases. Nine. I didn't say it. Okay. <laughs> ninth, ranked ninth is infectious diseases. Okay. So sharks and terrorism are 11, and infectious diseases is nine, nine, 11. <laughs> <laughs> Suicide is about twice as common as homicide in the U.S., in Washington State, the suicide rate is four times the homicide rate. 27? 35. Oh. oh. Wine cats. Oh, no, they misunderstood the rules. You guys were trying to go as far off the beaten path as possible. <laughs> me, 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 me. <laughs> so what, what, were you, what were you most off on, on one of them? Uh, we were most off on Alzheimer's. We were off on a lot of and stuff. What number, what, what rank did you put Alzheimer's? 11. Oh, no. Alzheimer's is killing. We also thought that diabetes was more prevalent. Like, the top three killers that I know are heart disease, diabetes, and cancer. Mm. I think diabetes is considered to be something that's coming in the future. Type 2, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. So, for us, the worst one was definitely frailty. But it it makes sense if it is lung-related. That, we, yeah, we should have known that actually was higher. Oh, and we definitely thought suicide was much further up on that. Further up. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about this list is think about United States citizens and all the people who die, okay? And we all want to try to save people's lives. And what do we talk about most in the news? Well, the w- terrorism and uh, politics, right? The Kardashians. And, sh- and sharks. <laughs> and homicide, which are the three most, you know, the three least likely reasons why you would die. But it's like, <gasps> today, someone had a heart attack. It's just not as impressive as this shark came out of the water and bit off the head of 20 people. But which related to terrorism, think about if we dumped as much money, like proportionally into heart disease as we dumped into terrorism. These colors don't run, dude. What? It's all about, it's all about narrative therapy. You know, some of these yes. things make great stories and because they make great drama, we talk about them because yeah. the news is about to, is about selling stories. Yeah, we're not all commies like you. <laughs> I would also argue that a lot of the uh, news um, does have a bit of a racist tint to it, and terrorism and homicide can be inflated quite a bit. That's right. Um, ah, interesting. Suicide is about twice as common as homicide in the United States, and in Washington State, the suicide rate is four times the homicide rate. Washington State is four times the homicide rate. Well, it's more of an indication of the weather, the fewer homicides that occur in Washington State. So, definitely, way too much money being spent in the wrong places. Yeah, you can just try making up, you know, good news stories about heart disease that gets old after a while. Right, or Alzheimer's. Someone forgot some stuff today. Well, but the whole premise of that, I think, is I'm sure you would agree, is like. Well, as a society, can't we decide what we want to pay attention to? I mean, can't we just say to ourselves, like, look, we're not paying attention enough to certain things and we're paying way too much attention to other things? Just because something sells doesn't mean we are idiots. It means that we can intentionally change things. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I agree. To expect that, I think, is crazy talk in, in today's society. But, but I, I feel like... We can do anything, you know? If, if we band together and create a movement, you know, I, I bet you we could... The 99 percenters, we could call it, of yeah. deaths. I actually agree with you, especially with as much access as we have to media that's free, um, YouTube and even, you know, podcasts. I mean, there's, there's access and influence, but the, obviously people that. with more money and who run, you know, media conglomerate situations can can influence a great deal of people though. Yeah, I mean what people can do is when they are watching something or listening to something that is focusing way too much attention on something that is that does not deserve the amount of attention it gets, just turn it off. Beautiful. Stop That's watching beautiful. it. It doesn't affect the Nielsen ratings. Just turning it off. It doesn't? That's easy for us to say, though. But you're sitting there watching. You're like, well, I'm going to turn it off. But outside your door, there's all these murderers trying to kill you and terrorists bombing your house <laughs> and sharks in your bathtub. So you got to be relieving the stress somehow. 
I would also say that I would also say that some people in high level politics benefit from your fear. So like um, when it comes down to the way that the media is representing the concerns in the world, it's you're a more easily manipulated population when you're afraid and looking to some greater person that's supposed to lead the way. Right. So capitalism wants to sell you things that actually hurt your heart physically, and so they don't want you paying attention to that. But again, we're human beings with a brain, and we can think for ourselves, and when we have the information in our head, we can make determinations of our behavior later, and so we can stop doing these. I don't know. Just try to I agree. I'm, I love that you're fired up about this so much because it's absolutely like I, I i know it's silly to like go into like talking about facebook a little bit but i used to post a lot more about very highly political and heated things that made me angry or people that made me angry and i've kind of gotten to the point where i just don't feel that a it's a use of my time good use of my time and b i don't know that it's helping anyone it's a little different what you're talking about but but a reflection upon what we pay attention to right and and at behaving with intention, I think, is something that we should all do. And if we just imagine if like half of Americans spent a little bit of time thinking about this, like the, the change in our society that would occur, it would just be great. All right. So do you want to do more tougher bluffs any, any, or do you want to end now or what's the, what's the verdict? Now, do, do you know how when the, when the U.S. Um, Olympic basketball team like trounces the world, you know how they later play fun games just for fun? Like we could do the same thing. We could be just like that. Okay, I have a whole series of tougher bluffs on child homicide. What do you say? (laughs) Yay! (laughs) Okay, Alicia says she loves it. Let's do it. Okay, child homicide. Tougher bluff. Most child homicides are perpetuated by their parents. Tougher bluff. Most child homicides are perpetuated by their parents. This is a very depressing topic. The ones that they would have the most access to are their parents. And they leave them in their trunk and they leave them in a closed car and they beat them to death. And so, Sadly, yes, tough. Jeez, take it to a dark place. Yeah, really. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Right. You're harsh in my vibe. And, and neck, neck beards. Uh, yeah, we're going with tough. It's tough. You both are correct. It really is tough. Uh, tougher bluff. Child homicides are perpetuated mostly by fathers. Tougher bluff. Okay, neck beards. We're going bluff. Bluff by the neckbeards. Okay, bluff as well. It's bluff. Okay. Half by mothers, half by fathers. Oh, okay, it's even. Uh, tougher bluff. The highest risk of child homicide is on the first day of life. Tougher bluff. The highest risk of child homicide is on the first day of life. The highest risk. Homicide is... Intentional. Is intentional. Oh, okay, fine. It's not accidental. All right, tougher bluff. The highest risk of child homicide is on the first day of life. Wine cats. Okay, we're going tough. And neckbeards. Neckbeards go bluff. It's tough. Wine cats pull ahead by two points. So what, what was your theory on that? The speculation is that a big reason why parents will kill their ch- children is because they don't want the child. And as soon as it's born, that's when they decide to do oh something about God, it. Is- okay, tougher bluff. Biological parents kill at much higher rates than step-parents. Biological parents kill their children at much higher rates than step-parents. Tougher bluff. Okay, neckbeards, do you guys have an answer? We're going bluff. Bluff for them? I'm going tough. It's bluff. Ah, see, you were wrong. It's the opposite. <laughs> step, step-parents kill at much higher rates than of biological course. parents. Have you not seen Pinocchio? God. Uh, in recent years, tougher bluff, in recent years... 24 nations, including the UK and Australia, have increased penalties for mothers who kill their child within the first year of life. In recent years, tougher bluff, 24 nations around the world, including the UK and Australia, have increased penalties for mothers who kill, the, who kill their child within the first year of life. Tougher bluff. So we're tough. All right. And neckbeards. We are also tough, but not for that reason. For what reason? Um, it makes sense that there's more attention being paid to children keeping statistics on how children die and when they die. So it makes more sense that there would be more awareness around that and more penalties for that. Actually, my, my thought was a lot around theirs is that there's just generally more misogyny in the world. So yep. they're going to just slap it to women more. For whatever reason, it is bluff. They have decreased the penalties for women who oh. kill their children within the first year of life around the world. <sighs> that doesn't make no sense then. 
Two more. The U.S. rate of infanticide, the U.S. rate of infanticide is eight per 100,000, while the Canada, Canadian rate, is only three per 100,000. So U.S. Uh, rate of killing children is eight per 100,000, and Canada is three per 100,000. Tough or bluff? Do you believe that Canadians kill their children less than Americans per capita? We're saying, we're saying reluctantly tough. Reluctantly tough at the starting line. Ah, oh, you bastard. You stole it. Yeah, we're hanging tough. It's tough. Yeah. For whatever reason, Canadians kill their children at less than half the rate as Americans do. They don't have guns. Um, they have guns, not as much as the United States do. They have lots of syrup. I'm not sure what they kill their children with. Last question of this terrible category that you made me do. A large percentage of child murders are committed by parents who are seriously mentally ill. Tougher bluff. A large percentage of child murders are committed by parents who are seriously mentally ill. Tougher bluff. Let's go with wine cats. Yeah, so I would have initially said tough three questions ago, but now we're consensing, consensing bluff because I bet you that in these new definitions, these new fangled definitions, so they're all not seriously mentally ill. I see. By seriously mentally ill, I'm guessing they mean psychotic, yeah, delusional. And, I, and we're saying no because they're going to call them, you know, distressed or they were doing all those other reasons that they, you know. So. And neckbeards. Yeah, we're, we're going with that too. Bluff. True. Uh, you guys are right. Bluff. Most are not mentally ill. Not even seriously. So most of the people who kill their children are found at the time of the murder not to be mentally ill, contrary to popular belief. I mean, what's the definition? You know, I know that there's a definition. It just seems un. It doesn't seem like a useful definition to say your brain is fine, dude. I know you just killed your child, but your brain's fine. Well, the, the definition of mental illness is not the perpetration of a crime, which is a, what the layman's. Uh, definition is which is fine if that's your definition but the definition of men, of a mental illness has a certain set criteria that has to be endorsed i, I totally get or that found and i totally get that i'm just asking for a new word we could call it wacko or 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 loopy where we can label these people and anyone that does something crazy that we can no longer call crazy so we can say you know what you are definitely not insane you're just wacko you've made a very bad decision yeah I would go with, you made a very bad decision. Is the most accurate, I think, way of mm-hmm. describing it. They've made yeah. a very, very poor decision. Okay. Because there's so many other options available to people mm-hmm. rather than killing a child. You've made a very bad... Okay, so bad decision makers. And an immoral decision. You could say immoral decision. It's easier in some ways to say that someone made a really horrific decision because they were mentally ill rather than they just made a bad decision. You know, it's like, oh, someone's sick in the head. So we can, but then the, the reality is that there are more. There are lots of people that are mentally ill, just not violent. They're just oh, quietly. Okay. I could get behind this. So we can call it BDMs, bad decision makers. So you're just such a BDM. Well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us, and thanks for joining me, everybody, for another podcast party. Yay! Everyone, please take care of yourself, and let's go to another quarter. Yay! Yay!